Future Generation acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. And the thing that interests me about this is making sure our giving is systematic and pragmatic and logical, not spasmodic and emotional. We need more of this. We need to build charity into capitalism. We've got a tax system, which is good. This needs to be the second biggest game in town. I'm really excited about today's guest. We have the fabulous Tim Minchin. Tim, to me, is someone who doesn't really need much introduction. He's a multi-award winning composer, lyricist, musician, actor, writer, comedian, producer and director. He's had sell-out shows from London's Royal Albert Hall to the Sydney Opera House. He's a member of the Order of Australia. But most importantly, as he sits here in front of me, he, he seems to be like one of those all-round good guys and he wants to talk about issues that concern all of us. He's married to his university sweetheart and um, he donates money to not-for-profits, which obviously is incredibly commendable. So, Tim, welcome. Hi. Thank you for being on Too That's Fast. A nice, um, it's a nice introduction. So yeah, you should get someone to read that to me every day just to keep me stable. <laughs> so it was actually quite hard for us to work out how to introduce you because, you know, your career is quite difficult to categorise. Like, you know, what do you think you do? Well, when I go through the airport, I write musician because I think that's at the core of it all. At the moment, mostly what I do is write television scripts because that's kind of the latest thing. But um, I'm sort of obsessed by the adventure of it and, and by variety. And I was always someone who was didn't fit particularly easily into any category and I kept being, you know, everyone kept saying, well, you've got to specialise. And mm. I, I happily... Um, didn't really get any success until my late 20s. And when I did get success, it was by doing these solo shows, which were really bringing my writing and my tendency to be silly on stage and my heavy lyrics and my piano playing. And, and I just brought it all in and kind of I, I didn't get success until I realised that all I had to do is do everything. And since then, I just I never specialised. So I don't know, I just try and make good stuff is what the sign on my office door says, make good stuff. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests. Um, but firstly, a bit of background. The podcast is called Twofold because our purpose at Future Generation is twofold. And we want to get not only the best investment returns for our shareholders, we really want to get the best social outcomes for young Australians by investing in mental health and youth at risk charities. So, Tim, what are your two main purposes in life? I think what I think as I get older and it changes, doesn't it? I mean, it it really changes and it's changed for me in the last few years because of, you know, this, uh, well, well, we'll get to it, I guess, but um, because it is about mental health and, and, uh, and trying to figure out how to be in the world. But I think, I think what I would love to do is be a joy to the people around me. And obviously in my job, I get to, you know, do that for a living but harder is to actually be a joy to the, your, your, what I call your circle of concern. You know, when you are, have, when you have to get up on stage and do something in front of five thousand people, 
and give them all joy, it can very easily have a net deficit effect on the people around you because you're under stress and you're online and you're reading all this stuff and you're and and so uh, I, I would really like to be a joy to the people around me, um, and I think that probably encompasses everything because it, it's very related to my make good stuff. I really want to make tell good stories mm. in all the forms and to be to be a positive glowing thing to the people around me and I think I find the second one harder as the world gets more uh, like an information tsunami that none of us can quite uh, surf. I think that's very true obviously you're you're a very generous supporter of charities you know you've donated 1.5 million proceeds from your back tour you know you sold a piano for charity you do lots of different things you do free shows and and many things that most people probably wouldn't know about so you know what why why do you want to give back yeah um well firstly i want to make sure i'm not overstating my philanthropic action i think it was more like 1.35 in the end we thought it was going to be a bit higher um and and i i'll i'll, I'll speak a bit about how we give that money away because it is me giving the money away but it's a bit more a system by which i leverage the generosity of my audiences and that relates to what you guys do, so I'm sure we'll get to that. But um, uh, I mean, and and look, I I do a bit, but I don't think I do enough, and that that's an ongoing thing. Uh, I want to do more and and make sure as I go further on in my career and in my life, and I'm feel more stable and more sure of who I am and what I do, and more sure of where my family's at. Um, I would like to do better, much better actually. I don't. I don't think I'm very good at it. Um, I, I have a genuine sense that I'm very, very, very lucky and that people who are less lucky are not to be blamed for that. They're just very, very, very less lucky. Um, and once you've sort of you know, built that foundation to your belief about the world, you've you got to do something, you know, uh, by which I mean one, one is ethically compelled to, to not just be a greedy, self-serving but, I mean, you know, I'm pretty greedy and self-serving. I think I'm just trying to offset it. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, you you get so many requests to actually get involved with charities. But, you know, what charities do you decide to support? Well, that's a really good question. And, um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about why you guys do what you do. I think it's very intuitive for me to... Um, so one of the things I did when Matilda started doing well is uh, one of the theatres I am in love with and very involved with in London is called The Old Vic and I have a, a scholarship there that helps a, a director go and train there um, and that that person has to come from... It's very broad. It's basically someone who has a lot of barriers in their way, so it might be socioeconomic or I guess... Um, you know, the, the demographic of who becomes directors in London, they're all very white and middle class. So yeah. I guess there's, um, it tilts towards people of colour and communities that are less likely to get there. Um, and that's really obvious to me because I think art's important. I'm not a fundamentalist about that. I, I'm quite pragmatic about art, but I, I do think we are storytelling creatures and how we tell stories about ourselves is the most important thing about culture and art is how we tell stories about ourselves. Um and then there's things that are personal to me. I, I, White Wine in the Sun, uh, which is my Christmas song that I wrote 15 years ago, 
um, I decided the second year uh, Christmas came around, I decided that the proceeds from that song should go to an autism charity because I have a, a cousin who's autistic and I was always interested in autism and autism research. So that, that white mind, the sun money has always going to gone to autism charities. And when I moved back to Australia, I shifted it to an Australian autism charity. And the person who I wrote that song about grew up and turned out to be autistic. So that's quite fun. Um, uh, my daughter, who's ASD. And uh, so there's personal stuff. Then there's geography, as in when I tour around Australia, I always give the money from those shows to the to a charity in the place I'm at. So when I, 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 the money I make from my Perth shows goes to a Perth charity, and we just do research, and often it's arts-based, um, but it's really various and a little bit arbitrary, uh, and there's a conversation to be had there about how effective my altruism is because really you should all give, give it to a central pool. That's a whole other thing. Um, but I think, again, we're storytelling creatures, so part of what I'm doing is not just giving money but giving attention to the charity. So I, I'm telling a story. I am a person who's giving to this charity and that encourages people to look into it. It's the same reason I'm here doing this podcast. But I think, I mean, that's, from my point of view, that's incredibly important because many people don't don't do very much at all. And the fact that you're actually getting involved in those charities where you're touring is incredible because you're bringing what they do out into the open as well. Um, I mean, obviously, in terms of your career, you've had amazing highs. And then, you know, obviously, you had your Larrikin movie, which kind of disappeared. So I, I think that, you know, you've, you've probably seen, you know, what depression can be and you've mentioned before that you know your family has sort of suffered from depression and we're well I'm really interested in this because obviously mental health um, is an area we're really interested at future generations so I'm interested really in your empathy with people that have mental health issues. Yeah I don't know I guess when you're in the arts uh, you I mean, a lot of people in our industry struggle with mental health and there's lots of reasons. And I'm intrigued by that because there's a chicken and egg quandary there because having mental health issues can incline you towards being an artist because you're trying to find a way through it and you're trying to express yourself and maybe some sort of neurodivergence, you know, where you don't fit into an easy box correlates with both mental health issues in our culture and a desire to be an artist because you're the other and you see yourself as the other. I, I'm very, very lucky because I think I am not, I don't have the chemical um, profile that we call depression. What I have been through is a very interesting journey of um, addiction to uh, serotonin and the, the, the highs you talk about, um, there's a reason why famous people are all mad. <laughs> screwed up and I, I think it's partly because the type of people who want to become famous and get all that attention are probably inclined to be a bit different anyway but I think there's a, a another thing which is that you it, it screws up your sense of self and it makes you see yourself from the outside when you know when you've stood up in front of 10,000 people standing on their feet cheering for you it sort of breaks something you know and if you do that a lot it's very hard to then just go home and go, oh, this is a nice breakfast with my kids. Where's the dopamine here? Where's that buzz? And that's why so many artists have addiction problems and stuff. So that's the, that's the elite problem of um, why 
so many people like me in arts. Um, I think uh, I think I'm interested in mental health now because it's quite clearly a crisis, and I have um, strong feelings about what that's about. Um, I don't know if I'm right, but um, I'm really, really listening and reading to or listening to and reading about what people think this epidemic of of mental health crisis uh, of mental health problems in youth is about. I think it's quite simple. I think it's just about too much information. I think when social media started happening, and I think I think um, our smartphones are, uh, well, more specifically, social media companies who run on an algorithm that sells our data to advertising companies, um, and their whole model requires us to get addicted to looking, and the thing that makes us look is outrage. I think that model, the outrage-based advertising model of social media, which they didn't mean to be, but they are. Um, should be illegal. I think it's the end times. I think it, tribalism being the greatest problem in human history always is on the rise because of that model. Um, so that that's my base position. And and yet what we were worried about five years ago, I remember, when, do, I, do we give our kids Instagram, is that especially young women would be, you know, would, would be more objectified and would think they have to be performatively sexual on their Instagram feeds. And we thought the likes and the bullying, we thought that was the problem. I think it's just information in. I think it's just that everyone is taking in something all the time. Funny cat videos, the opinion of a bigot, the opinion of someone you furiously agree with, you know, anything. It's just information in. And that's the thing I've changed about myself. I've got off Twitter. I'm pretty. I'm pretty much off Facebook, and I'm I'm light on Instagram, and that's the thing I've done for myself. And I'm definitely better, happier, and more able to be joyful for my family. I'm more able to be a positive human, wandering around the house, and um, uh, and I also have my daughter who like many many girls on the autism spectrum didn't get diagnosed even though we are super apparently aware because um they're so good at being autistic they're so good at masking um and what happened to her is what happens to many autistic girls they hit puberty and they just melt down and so she had um acute depressive disorder and it was just awful having a kid Mm. who's that just really what the psych described as ahedonic clash. Not only does she feel no hope today, she feels no hope that there will be hope. And it's, and that's, and, and ours was a sort of mild thing because she wasn't hurting herself or, or not eating or doing any of those things. I mean, she wasn't physically hurting herself. And, but that, that experience, you know, as a parent, just, I mean, you know, what they say, you're only as happy as your youngest kid. So once you've, she's fantastic at the moment. She, we've, we've done a lot of stuff changed a lot of stuff and she's great but yeah it certainly gets you interested in in uh in and in do you think time. i mean do you think in terms of your your fame especially perhaps overseas even though you're pretty damn famous here you know what kind of impact does that have on your kids i mean is that one of the reasons why you decided to move back from la yeah um again it's sort of it's the elite problem yeah. of fame I have made decisions based on not wanting to get more recognisable. Um, and I think it's a really... I don't think having a famous parent is good for kids at all. I think it's an absolute... I mean, obviously, they have a huge amount of privilege because we've been so lucky and they go to good schools and stuff. But I just don't think... 
you want it. It's just not what kids need. To change direction slightly, I mean, you you have weighed in on so many really tough, weighty issues. Um, you know, child abuse in the church, racism, homophobia, but you do it in this sort of trademark, satirical way. Um, how do you get how do you get people to take these issues really seriously? as they, you know, laugh to the songs or the poems or whatever it might be, so you can actually affect change. It's such a fine line, I find. Yeah, I'm not sure I set out to try and create an art form in order to affect change. I think I was making my art and I knew what I was good at or I eventually figured out what I was good at and it just happened that the stuff that agitated me, that, that, uh, drove me to action was sometimes anger is a very good fuel for comedy. Um, you know, the Cardinal Pell songs are a bit of a black swan. I, I've reflected on that a lot, especially because I loathe public shaming and that was an act of public shaming, but um, it, it's probably the best thing I've ever done in terms of the, the feedback I've got. Hundreds and hundreds of people saying, you know, that that was a moment for them, not just my song, but that mm. moment of, yeah. of finally people going, actually, no, this is not good enough, um, allowed them to come out really mm. as, as survivors. But um, there's no doubt that there's a lot of tough stuff in the world. Everyone's got their struggles and often we don't know about them. There's no doubt that if you sugar the pill, you can get something across the line that is less likely to get across the line in dry form. So that's what art does is, yeah, it might be activism, it might be social justice and and the swearing and the laughter allows to sneak in a really strong message. But all films and music and it all has stories underneath it that help us reflect on what we value and stuff. So that that's kind of the job. I am... Um... I sort of look at the charity sector and the art sector and there's this view in a way that, you know, corporate Australia is inherently evil, like big yeah. business is, is evil, you know, and when we met your brother in Perth, Dan, we, we talked about this concept and it's a bit of an us-them mentality. I've always felt, and I've come from sort of corporate Australia, so, you know, we, they can do so much good and, you know, and, and many of them really want to. I, I just wonder what your view was on that. I just abhor false binaries, so it's all nonsense. I mean, the trouble with corporate Australia is they have power and artists and lefties and, well, not lefties, but artists uh, tend to have less power. There's absolutely no doubt that if you gave all the artists 10 million bucks, there'd be the same distribution of greediness and avarice and you know, gross behaviour as in the corporate sector, probably. Um, I know people across all spectrums and I also know the arts in this country and across the world are largely run on the philanthropy of the corporate sector and we love to bite the hand that feeds us, we artists. At the same time, it is our job to slap the hand that feeds us if the hand that feeds us are being gross and um, not, not gross, psychopathic and corporations have a very easy excuse and, and are fundamentally psychopathic. So you need something in the structure, you need fundamental structural things in place 
that offset the fact that corporations are by their nature psychopathic. I'm slightly off my area of expertise, but would you say that's right? That that that's kind of a problem is that the corporation itself is psychopathic, not the not the people within it. Ah, uh, I think that's such a long debate. I mean, I personally, I think that corporate Australia has really learnt their lessons mm. and I think they really do want to make a difference I think they're now really looking at that sort of that triple bottom line of like you know people you know and and planet but also profit yeah like obviously profit is incredibly important but I I do think they want to do more and I yeah. think it's that opportunity um and I but I also think it's the communication between both and how you change that I think that's so right. I wouldn't actually say psychopathic no well I just mean the structure of you know, if a company owes its shareholders maximum profits, it's it is. I'm, I mean, psychopathic in the in the sort of most literal mm. sense. It is not. It, it, you have to put structures in place and allow people to make human decisions in order to offset the the fact that a profit driven model will always fall towards will not necessarily fall towards. But not yeah. I just don't think it does as much as perhaps it has we, done in the past. Yeah. Mainly because you know corporate responsibility you just mm. don't get the staff otherwise if you don't train them they won't right. stay and if you don't have your people you don't really have a business right. and, and i look at driving. sort of the people we're talking to in terms of you know our charitable work they want a really good place to work that cares about them and the environment and yeah. pays them you know it's, need to get paid yeah i think that's exactly the answer i was trying to evoke from you because <laughs> i i think that that's the position isn't it that we we know from experience that Psychopathic is actually not as good a word as amoral. A business, you know, a corporate business structure driven by profit is an amoral entity. The people within it are not amoral. And if if one of the main things that one of the main forces that is brought to bear on the behaviour of a corporation is that the people who are working at it demand mm. certain amount of morality, then that's amazing, right? And I think I'm absolutely that's, that sure. is definitely the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I think amoral is probably a better term, one yeah. that's more palatable and understandable, <laughs> to be honest. And I certainly think I am incredibly taking off my um, provocative hat. I'm incredibly agitated by... Uh, by tribalism and cliches and and we arty lefties if that's what i am are as bad as anyone if not worse at sort of pretending there are good and evil people in the world and that we're all good and they're all evil and you know painting them with an absurdly two-dimensional brush i'm mixing, mixing metaphors there. <laughs> yeah. you make it sound so much more interesting <laughs> we, are, we are the worst <laughs> And I'm constantly frustrated by, I'm actually very frustrated because I'm on the board of the um, uh, the, the fundraising part of the Sydney Theatre Company. I, I, I'm very involved in all this stuff and it's so frustrating when people don't understand. You know, some artists are so outraged by stuff that you're just like, oh, you don't, you don't understand how this works at all. But, of course... Um, one of my other theatre companies I've been very involved in, the Royal Shakespeare Company recently, you know, has the fact that they take, um, I don't want to get this wrong, so, but money from environmentally unfriendly corporations has kind of come up against their very arty audience and workers. And 
and I'm always interested in this and I, I don't talk to my friends about it because I don't want to get in trouble, but I, I think that's good pressure to bear. I think in this age, anyone burning fossil fuels basically needs to be slowly shamed out of the marketplace as soon as possible. But meanwhile, we're all using their product all day, every day, of course. So one doesn't want to be a rank hypocrite. But also, I think that, I mean, I, I think about, I mean, I have a TV show on Foxtel, which is owned by Murdoch, and I have endless people saying, um, I can't believe you let Murdoch buy your show. And I'm like, no, I, I couldn't pay. No one can pay for the show except Foxtel. And by the way, you should all get Foxtel and get Murdoch to think, do you know what the best thing to do with my power and resources is? It's, it, we, I should make lots of Australian drama because they love it. But you know, that would be great. We should make, <laughs> make Murdoch obsessed by Australian drama. Don't switch it off. That will make him just put all his resources into his <laughs> news channel. <laughs> okay, right. Obviously, you're you're incredibly passionate. So let's turn to politics. And um, <laughs> I'm not you... <laughs> passionate. I just have a big mouth. But so you've waded into a few political issues, um, and obviously with the federal election, you threw behind Kate Cheney and Curtin, Western Australia. You know, would you go into politics? No, not at all. No, I think about it sometimes. I think I there's things I think. There's attributes that people like me have that I think we could do with more of in politics. Um, as in I, I can speak and uh, I have... A, my, as in you could improve the political discussion. <laughs> I think I, I, a discourse is my obsession and I, um, and my base, I have a broad philosophical basis. I, I don't know. There, there doesn't seem to be much actual interest in neuropsychology or, or philosophy in politics and I don't really know how you get into politics without wondering what it is to be human and to have a position and, and certainly if you have a prime minister in a country like this that's a fundamentalist Christian I just think well, what are we? I mean I don't, I don't that's that doesn't feel like a true representation of our population and all that stuff I think um however that 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 telling stories and making art can affect change and it's what I'm better at and stuff I think I would I would be really very frustrated sitting in parliament um I think you probably yeah. would be as yeah. well actually so <laughs> I hope you're not offended by this I'm not and offended by you're that. sort of you look like the typical alternative lefty but you know you are you are really a case of um a book not actually matching the cover um, and you're a hard believer in hard science. So I've heard you speak on that. And, and you know, you're anti the woke culture and you've even compared the far left to the far right. So in terms of your politics, what actually is it? Well, I think it's, no one's ever asked me that. Thank God. That's sorry. <laughs> um, and and I, I think what I think is I, um, I think I, it serves me to not really... Um, I'm not a political animal in that I'm profoundly untribal, or at least I'm really anti-tribal. And you, you said I'm anti the woke culture, and I, I'm not so much anti-woke as anti-religion. And I don't mean I'm anti-Catholic or anti-Buddhist or anti. I'm anti-religion in its broadest sense. I'm anti-humans mobbing together with a a set of didactic 
ideas of, of, of doctrine. I don't think what a lot of people who call themselves lefties are is left anymore. I, I think it's, um, it's doctrinal uh, and it requires that you accept a bunch of sort of sentences with capital letters and uh, it requires that you put aside your doubt and accept a bunch of rules and uh, that gives me the heebie-jeebies on any side of politics. So I would say I'm passionately political in the broadest sense on a case-by-case basis on issues that I am agitated by and think I can affect change around. And I will take every single issue on its own merits based on data and observation and empirical attitude to the so world. what are you going to do next? What are you going to take? I'm going to make another TV show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, but I have I have retired. I mean, I... I What's retired? As in I don't write comedy songs. Anymore. I don't write yeah. satire anymore because I think there's a time and a place to be a, a, a an enfant terrible and be an agitator and, and it gets when you're as powerful as me, as in when you've got a voice and money, it gets a bit gauche. You know, you've met so many people like who is the person that you would like to spend time with oh jesus i don't know no jesus um i'd like to meet if jesus had had existed he would have been amazing i mean someone like him probably did i would have liked to meet that guy or woman whatever it was um i have been very very lucky to have dinner with some of my heroes and my heroes tend to be nerdy heroes. Like, like I can, uh, if I'm in London, I can call Stoppard up, although he's 90 something now. Pretty amazing um, man. And I, I've had dinner with Ian McEwen and Zadie Smith and, um, you know, I, I've met Dawkins many times, uh, who he's an interesting guy, but, uh, who do I want to spend time with? I, I spent time with my wife and kids down in Kangaroo Valley, really. That's all I want to do at the moment. Um, I'm very, very lucky the people I get to meet. Much harder is when you've moved around the world is forming long-term friendships and long-term connection to family and country, to use the Indigenous word, or your place. Um, I've learned the hard way how that you break that at your peril. I've had an amazing life, but I keep breaking these beautiful friendships for me and my wife and, that's why we came back to make sure we didn't do it to our kids as well. We've, we've now talked about me a lot, which is uh, incredibly interesting. I love it. I'll talk about me all day. But I, the reason I'm here, I guess, is because I'm always interested in, and through my brother who um, runs a not-for-profit sort of... Social a, impact. A social yeah. impact charity in, in, in West Australia. And I talk to him a lot. We mm. talk a lot about how we run our businesses and mm. about... A lot of it's about the personal stuff, but we're both very, very interested in um, social impact, I guess. And so it's through him that I met you guys. And so I guess what interests me is um, the fact that you guys have found and you uh, running this part of this company of Future Generations, which allows your charitable giving to be built into the system rather than uh, philanthropy is fantastic, but it tends to be, um, there's an amazing book by, uh, his surname's Bloom, I think, called Against Empathy. 
And his th- it's such a provocative title, but his thesis is we have to be careful about empathy in its natural form because it tends to be um, susceptible to homophilia apart from anything else that we're very uh, worried about people who are like us. So if a little blonde girl goes missing, we all will give our houses. But if, you know, 10,000 kids who don't look like us die in an earthquake in Iran, then we're, you know, so his against empathy thesis is about being wary of our empathic instinct because it can be, it's not the best use of our desire to do good is to react sort of as a spasm when koalas die or, you know, it's a perfect example. We gave so much money to koalas and the fire, you know, the RFS or whatever, and we didn't, they didn't know how to use that money. Mm. And so um, there, there are lots of ways that, um, people over the world are trying to make altruism more systematic and less um, uh, just um, emotional. And what you guys are doing is there's, there's no, I mean, it's, it's locked in, right? It is locked in. So what, so in 2012, our founder, Jeff Wilson, he went to London and he read an article in the financial times and it basically talked about a group of fund managers that had come together to give money to, to breast cancer. And what they did was they got shareholders to give them money and they managed it and they managed it for free and then they gave all the money. So they waived their fees. They waived their fees, went direct to the charities. adds up to a lot quite quickly. So you 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 have all these fund managers who so waived their fees. So we have 30 fees. fund managers. And that's generated 52 million bucks in five years. Yes, yes, it has actually, which is truly remarkable. So It's amazing. And and in my, so the reason it intrigued me when I was reading about it is because this is my tiny, tiny little village fate version of that is rather than every year sitting down with Sarah and going, where do we give our money? My aim is like like many people in the this effective altruism movement, uh, people pledge to give 10% of their income away regardless of what it is till they die. I'm, I'm not a pledgy guy, but I'm trying. And, um, <laughs> and, and yet um, I can give a lot more than that away. And yet it's barely me giving it away by building it into my system. So for my tour, that stretched over three years, three and a half years because mm. of COVID. Um, I can't remember how many shows we did. It was only 150 shows or something. But every in, in my industry, there's this scam they call VIP tickets. And a lot of artists just sell the sort of centre block, whatever it is. If it's in an arena, it's 200 seats. If it's in a theatre, it's 50 or whatever. And they call them VIP tickets. They charge twice as much and they get bugger all really it's just a way to scrape more cream off the top because some people will pay whatever to sit in the middle so i give those tickets away and and like you with your fund managers and all the people all up and down the line we call the theaters we call the ticketing people and ticketing people are famously um not easy to convince to give their percentage away um and um and my management and everyone who's affected by this giveaway they all waive their percentages and we give away 50 seats and we charge twice as much now 250 bucks so we give away ten thousand dollars a night which is that's it's a big no, it's not a lot i don't make a lot i mean i i'm very very lucky i i provide a thing that a lot of people want to see so but that's a that's that ain't ten percent of what i'm taking for it's 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 a lot more and um and yet i i feel good about that because I, I wouldn't charge those ticket prices. I'm really leveraging. And I tell those ticket buyers that they're buying charity seats. So they feel good. And 
it's just and do they know which charity it's going to uh, they i tell them on the I, every yeah. every night i come back on uh, for my uncle with the t-shirt of the charity on and i tell them about the charity and i tell them how much they've earned that night and i tell them the grand total of the tour and everyone's enrolled and so what you're doing is enrolling fund managers who want to be more giving because they're all rolling around in because their they're courses. also really good at what they do but they yeah. don't necessarily have time no, exactly. to do everything to else to go so, to the church fair yeah. or to do the soup kitchen and the thing that interests me about this is is about to come back to what i was talking about making sure our giving is systematic and pragmatic and logical not spasmodic and emotional is that we need more of this we need more we need to build charity into capitalism you know, we need to, we've got a tax system, which is good, but this is, a, this needs to be the second biggest game in town. But I think you're exactly right. The more people we can get to understand our model, the benefit it will be. I'm really optimistic. I, I think that the model is so good. It's very unique in Australia, but it's been proven. So Great. yeah, we've just got to get the word out really. And I think concentrating on mental health charities is, is very timely because if everyone's bonkers, we can't get anything done. And with your kids, how how oh, yeah. do you you know how do you give them passion for life to do what they want to do and to you know be joyful and happy, but also get them to appreciate that they are lucky and they should give back. Well, this is an interesting conversation. I mean, you can't teach your privileged kids to. You shouldn't teach your privileged kids that they should feel bad for their privilege. If you want to have not spoiled kids, don't spoil your kids. You can't spoil them and then say, by the way, there are children starving. And, and it's something I had to learn the hard way because I kind of did. I gave them this nice life and then would go, how dare you not eat your dinner? I, I, I found it because of my, because of my guilt Guilt's not the right word because of my understanding of how lucky we are. I found, and, and, and when Violet started getting unhappy, I, I mean, I, I didn't, before I knew what was going on for her, I, I, there are things I did that I'm, I think were, I'm, I feel terrible at and when, that being a parent is all about feeling bad about being a parent. But, uh, you know, I was, because I was brought up this way, I was like, get out of bed. Come on, we're going for a jog. You know, you've got nothing to mope about. There's people suffering all over the world and you're lying in your bed in your bloody mansion in Coogee, you know, like, how dare you? I didn't say that, but that was my feeling. And that was the worst possible thing to tell my daughter at that stage. I, I just, that was, I, I didn't say quite that, but I almost said that. I, I would say, you've got nothing to complain about. That's just such a bad thing to do to an autistic kid who's got, depression because of course she feels bad about feeling bad i mean oh i'm so stupid for a not very stupid person i can't believe that but it's a learning you're learning yeah, all I'm the learning. time though and that that's a big answer to it. the short question the short answer which i never give which is how do you teach your kids to be socially aware and the answer is the same as how do you teach your kids anything and i learned this too slowly and that is you model it, you don't tell them because modelling is everything and that's what you're doing. You, you model ethical behaviour in a company. I try to model reasonable behaviour as a comedian. I'm sure I fail all the time as an artist. Um, 
and you model for your kids. And, and that's what people respond to, stories and modelling. Lecturing rarely works. Every now and then a satirical song can make a bit of impact. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for just being, I don't know, so candid and so open. Like, it's, yeah, it's a terrible it is. I always <laughs> regret it afterwards. Well, all I can say is thank you. And, um, you know, it's great. It's good. really good.